came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to season three of Disasters Deconstructed. Finally, yay! I feel like we've had like a ten-year break or something. I don't know that something is happening with time. It's too fast and too slow. Hey, Jason. Hey. Well, I think it's just 2020. It's been a pretty strange year, and play, it's messing with my mind. This pandemic and everything. Right. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what's happening with time. Um, also. Just the fact that we've been kind of recording season three from our bedrooms for past what three months without changing the scenery at all. It's a little bit difficult to process, but oh well, here we are, season three. One of the problems, of course, as the person who's kind of hosting the calls for the third season is that I haven't had reliable internet, which is a bit of a problem when you're trying to record uh, multiple audio feeds. So that's been fun in season three. I think uh, Jason should start a whole new podcast about um, his Wi-Fi and internet connection. It'll be riveting. It's been an experience. Shout out to Cox Communications. Amazing, amazing company. <laughs> <laughs> so, season three, we have so many wonderful guests. Guys, you're in for a treat. I've enjoyed this season so much. Yeah, it's been um, incredible to to get on the line with people and um, interview very diverse group of guests. When we, when we sat down to plan season three, we reflected on what we did in season two, which was look at stories and narratives and how we frame different key issues in disaster studies. And it went really well. And hopefully you all enjoyed it and appreciated the stories that came out of it hopefully learn something along the way. And we just thought we had a lot more to, to cover in terms of stories and framing and narratives. So we've kind of continued with the same theme into, into season three. And we're bringing you a lot more content, looking at different ways of communicating about disasters, using different mediums, different approaches, um, such as, you know, creative writing and journalism and music and photography. And I'm just so amazed by the different ways that people use their creativity to communicate about disasters. And we've also reflected on what is happening around us. Uh, well, of course, COVID-19 um, has become an unavoidable topic. I think we've managed to mention it in pretty much every episode. But we didn't just focus on that. We, again, talked a little bit about culture. We talked about the way we work as academics and practitioners. We talked um, about failures. So uh, the content is really, really broad. But after all, everything kind of comes to the way we talk about disasters and the way we narrate about disasters. And I suppose what we've all seen in the past few months is that um, disasters are definitely not natural and that disasters definitely do not 
impact everybody equally. And, you know, I've been getting really, really angry every time I heard in the news that, oh, COVID-19 has been a great equalizer. Well, <laughs> it definitely hasn't. Yeah. And this is what we will try to bring to you in this season. We know from history that disaster is not natural. And we know that root causes of disasters very often are removed um, in time and space. So what can be better than starting the season with emphasizing that? So today on the show, we have Scott Knowles, who is a professor and head of Department of History at Drexel University in the United States. Um, he is the author of The Disaster Experts, a book which we'll discuss with him later on. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on. Sure. It's, uh, we've been trying to arrange this for a while. We've wanted to talk to you since 2019 when we, when we started this um, podcast. So I wanted to um, start off, Scott, by um, coming back to something we talk about quite frequently in this podcast, which is this conversation about how disasters are framed sometimes as events or around the hazard which is kind of the, the trigger, so to say. And we have that, those sorts of narratives of risk and disaster, and they're problematic sometimes. And what we've been trying to do in the podcast is help people appreciate how risk um, is created and accumulates over long periods of time. So obviously you're a disaster historian, and we wanted to ask you, first of all, how do you frame risk and disasters to help people maybe look at the root causes and not symptoms? Well, I think that's an important question. And the way I start coming at it as, as a historian is always to be looking for the temporal aspect of what we call a disaster. Mm -hmm. And when you use history as a tool, you find that um, the sort of clear beginning, middle, and ending points uh, may be so clear to us, but not so clear to people in the moment. And so with that as a guide, I think we can transfer that insight even to the way we talk about disasters that are happening right now, which is to say um, people living through any number of disasters that we can locate in the historical record. Uh, you know, it might have been clear to them that uh, a flood was happening or a fire was happening. I mean, obviously, there are such things as events, but those events are never cut off from uh, preceding flow of events that make the conditions that are possible, conditions that make disaster possible. Um, and then very long and messy, what we sometimes call recovery, which seems to somehow lump uh, a wild array of different kinds of post-disaster activities and realities into one box. It does uh, damage to the history. So we use history's guide on the one hand, I think it opens up our possibilities for a much wider range of voices, a much wider range of experiences of disaster. On the flip side of it is um, history doesn't tee up a simple checklist of lessons learned. And that sometimes um, has worked against the historical profession being consulted by um, disaster practitioners who would like, who uh, maybe don't have the luxury to spend as much time and they would like to have clear answers uh, about what they can learn from the past. It doesn't usually present itself that way in terms of clear answers, but the method of looking for antecedents, looking for social conditions, looking for environmental conditions, and then following disasters out over long stretches of time, I think that's a pretty powerful methodology. 
it just makes me think of how a lot of the decision makers will will kind of try to downplay the role of historical risk and say, well, let's not talk about all that stuff which happened in the past, you know, and as if the current conditions just came out of nowhere, you know. And also there's this issue with some historical lenses um, where the powerful have interpreted history um, in a certain way to bring us to the the kind of current decision-making framework. So uh, how do you deal with that that kind of uh, conversation around power and, you know, single-minded drive to not consider history? One thing to do, I mean, if I'm thinking historically, is that we just need to continually write works that demonstrate that struggles over power are constant in what we call disaster history. In mm-hmm. fact, I think that, you know, if we are really successful at doing the kind of work we do, the concept of disaster is it's generally framed, an event that's unwanted, that happens as an external sort of event, affecting people with an end, yeah. ending point. Um, that as you start to actually reframe it as struggles over power, or struggles over resources, um, then it's not, again, that the disaster event disappears. I'm not so postmodern to say that fire isn't a real thing and that people don't drown in floods, but I mm. think that those are sort of just proximate causes that demonstrate much longer patterns of risk-taking and mm. conflict over that risk-taking. And so, you know, to your question about, so I think that's what, you know, in, in disaster history, disaster studies, that's a lot of what we strive to do. And I think what you would find in the last 10 years particularly, not so much when I started 20 years ago, but I would say in the last 10 years particularly, that there's a development of a historiography that um, tries to move away from disaster types when possible. So not to write a book about a single flood or a single earthquake, Mm. but to actually um, put disaster events in longer sequences. So if we're going to talk about earthquakes in San Francisco, let's talk about earthquakes in San Francisco going from the 19th century up into the late 20th century. Now that's a powerful model. And when you do that, you see, Joanna Dill wrote a tremendous book that took just this approach. And you see um, the maintenance of struggle over power, over representation, over welfare, over long periods of time. The other thing I would say to this is that I think we have to be prepared to, and this isn't comfortable for every academic, but I do think, and I think we can train people to get better at this, we have to be prepared to wade into the discussion. If if a, a school shooting happens or a hurricane comes and a politician says, this is not the time to talk about politics, <laughs> we have to wait until the disaster is over to talk about politics. We hear this constantly in the United States. Please do not politicize this horrible event. I tell you, if you wait around for the moment when that politician says, now I invite your political discussion, you will never find that moment. (laughs) So we have to be assertive that disasters themselves reveal political struggle. They are political struggle and they make political struggle. They're not some separate space in which we wait for an event to end and talk about it later.
too often we see that disasters are so apolitical in the way we talk about them. And I wonder whether, you know, maybe to an extent is the influence of natural science. But just hearing what you're saying about historical perspective, to me, it seems that if we talk about disasters, taking into account historical perspective, maybe we would understand better that disasters are not natural, right? And as you probably know, Jason and I are really quite passionate about this controversial notion of disasters being natural and also in how we use our language to express or not express that. And we have been talking for the past two seasons about the framing um, of disasters uh, not being natural and the reasons why that is the case. So I wonder, you know, from your perspective, when you look back at the disasters in history, do you see this debate about naturalness of disasters occurring? And what does it reflect? Does it reflect ideological divides? Does it reflect power? What's, what do you see in it? Well, first of all, I would I would applaud you for your crusade, um, <laughs> and it's an important one, and I think you've made progress. Uh, and I think that the concept of the natural is one that's very much um, under examination right now. And I see particularly, I think journalists right now are being much more um, reflexive in how they deploy that term, and maybe this is the impact of climate change and, and realizing the anthropogenic notion of that. But um, one point that seems pretty clear to me is that the development of value in the environment is a precursor of industrialization. And that's not to say that it's only in the industrial period forward. Obviously, development of value in nature has ancient roots as well. But let's say the, the sort of industrial scale development of value in nature. So mining, building cities. Uh, exploiting the oceans, petrochemicals. I mean, that's the ground. That's the environmental and political ground out of which most of what we call disaster takes place in. And so I think you have to start with that. And, and, and then so if you start with that as a first premise, how can natural as a category be meaningful at all? It, it might be meaningful in very narrow senses to talk about, well, this kind of ecosystem is experiencing shock versus that kind of ecosystem is experiencing a shock, shock. but the human and the non-human uh, and the non-living are always in a relationship in, mm. in that sense. And so I don't know what year we would put on the board. I mean, the discussions around the Anthropocene right now are highly productive in this, in this regard. Some would argue yeah. it's 10,000 BCE. Others would say it's when the first nuclear weapon was uh, detonated uh, that's a good parlor game, but I think they all play by the same rules, which is that it's this interrelationship between the human, the non-human, and the non-living in the environment that, that creates the ground for that discussion. So I would start with that. And so then it's it's a nonsensical question. And I think, Ksenia, to your, I think your larger point, to me, then we want to be looking at, is someone mischaracterizing it because it's convenient for them to characterize it in that way? In other words... Do they want to choose a logic and deploy a logic that sees risk-taking in the environment as itself a natural human activity? And that's probably more what they mean. In other words, if you think that capitalism is an inevitability of human life on Earth, then that feels natural, right? There's some slippage there between what we see as a sort of natural 
you know, a forest with no people in it versus natural, like a tendency to do things. And I think we almost mean the latter one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, we've seen the very conscious choice of the misnomer and the use of the misnomer recently. Um, if you remember the wildfires in Australia when Scott Morrison was very intentionally using the natural disasters phrase. And it was really quite fascinating to see that choice of words. He's, he's used it. And in the midst of this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, President Trump has... Uh, I don't think he's characterized as natural. He characterizes as the invisible enemy. Right. But again, that's a, that plays to this sort of notion that somehow it's outside of of human inter interaction or human perception, either. So how could we then be blameless in any way? If that's your frame. I want to ask you about your book, The Disaster Experts, and I, I recall that you referred to this issue a couple of times in the book as well, where different actors had used this sort of uh, language or framing about disasters as, as being acts of God or natural in there. But as you know, I moved to the US um, in the past year, and I, I really appreciated your book, and I wanted to ask you about the way you position knowledge as being created within the context of this very complex and changing culture and society and how this has maybe inhibited the work of those trying to protect the public. So how difficult have the so-called experts found it in the United States and why is it that way? Well, um, first of all, I've never thought of that book as a manual for disaster researchers coming from other countries to the United States to understand <laughs> the American culture. But I'm quite <laughs> pleased to hear, and maybe my publisher needs to somehow feature that as a, <laughs> I think an so. un undiscovered utility of the book. I, I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> you know, um, I think that when I started that book, I... Let me add a little context because I think it's it's useful. Uh, the the historiography of cities at that time was coinciding with a renaissance of cities around the world in the late 1990s, and so there was a lot of technological enthusiasm out there. And historians were. I think not immune to that. And there were a lot of books about sort of the rise of great technological systems in that moment. And I was drawn to the, to the darker side of that. I was drawn to the fires and the floods and the pandemics of the 19th century. Mm. And what had largely been reduced to a set of almost nursery rhymes about like the Chicago fire of 1871 and these myths, you know, that the fire was started by a, uh, Irish. There's always an immigrant involved in these stories, by the way, this sort of Irish uh, milkmaid who uh, wasn't paying attention. The cow knocks over the candle burns up and then somehow Chicago burns down. You know, yeah. these are the kind of stories that we had inherited. And what I wanted to know was, well, the fact is that American cities did burn down in the late 19th century, but by the 1920s, they stopped. Mm. So why? 
um, the cities actually became larger and more technologically complex and populated in those years. So it doesn't make sense naturally that they would stop burning. What was going on with that? And what I concluded was that they stopped burning because of the rise of a quite sophisticated and unique um, body of expertise that grew up around fire protection. Mm -hmm. And I focused on fire in the first part of the book, but the, the lessons there, I think, are also transferable to structural safety, to public health, um, to flood control. And it is that you no longer had a sustainable urban ecosystem. Uh, these fires were coming with such regularity and such ferocity that they were killing people, making it uh, psychologically untenable, and they were uh, most important, what I found out, which hadn't, I didn't know, they were bankrupting insurance companies. And so in the absence of any kind of strong central government, the problem was that um, these fires were happening and these cities were being left to basically solve the problem on their own and they didn't have the capacity to do it. I mean, they barely had fire departments, not to mention departments of fire materials research. So that was the path that I followed in the research. And what I located was the origin of a system in the United States of a private-public partnership around the formation of standards. And those are the standards that, that um, take a look at fire. Those are the standards of, of how buildings are protected against fire. Most of those standards are, they've been updated, but many of them are still the same today. Um, this is where we start to see standardization across all sectors of the built environment in those years. The difference in the United States and other countries is that it was not left to a central government enterprise or the growth of a large federal bureaucracy, but in fact, it was a lot of it was managed privately through uh, universities and science labs, through insurance companies that built science labs, and through unique public-private partnerships, for example, the Underwriters Laboratory. And just one more thing I would say to this is that they, one of the main things they struggled against, and this is, was the start of your question, was um, a logic of real estate development and capital development, which had sort of said fire is an inevitability, is a natural part of urban growth. And this was a constant rhetoric after fires. You would very commonly see, you know, after the Chicago fire, the newspaper said, well, only great cities burned down. Rome burned down. London burned down. So Chicago burning down is a symbol that Chicago is a great, great city. And you have the insurance industry of Chicago saying, well, that's total insanity. We have to change the way this discussion works. And they worked very hard to move the discussion out of the realm of metaphysics or out of the realm of, I think, a sort of unthinking um, inevitability of human action and push it into the realm of science. And they were quite successful at that. So by the 1920s, we still don't have federal centralized standard making in the United States. And one could argue even today, we still don't have it. Um, but you do have a quite robust public-private system that defines disasters as knowledge problems and then populates that space with experts to try to solve that problem. We can judge the degree of their success or lack of success. Of course, it's not constant. It's always changing in time, depending on how much you invest in it, how much the public trusts those experts. One thing that 
that I find really interesting is the narrative of the need for risk mitigation, the need for money to be invested in preparing or working to not create risk in the first place. And the way that that conflicts with the agenda of many of those who have the power to make decisions to that effect and how that plays out in the history of disasters in in the United States is fascinating. I think that to me is such a crucial insight and it leads you to places where you start trying to locate the, we were talking earlier about, you know, history of disaster is actually a history of powerful entities arguing. Mm. And the argument between the forces of real estate development and the forces of fire protection, for example, those arguments have a long history in the United States. Uh, right now, we're seeing that play out in the um, sort of realm of sustainability expertise. So land use planners and architects, um, uh, ecosystems managers, uh, climate change scientists, and real estate developers on the other side. I mean, the, the argument about what should be on the American coastline is the, well, I would have said before COVID-19, it was the number one discussion. It's now, I guess it's the number two discussion. Yeah. Uh, in this space, but it has a long history. Sometimes the players change. The insurance industry is less forceful in that public policy space today than it used to be in the United States, but boy, you nailed it. And I think there's another angle on this. I mean, think about nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Cold War, if your main concern was not having a large percentage of the world's population incinerated or die from uh, radiation exposure, then eradicating nuclear weapons was the only strategy, right? Mm. But that ran contrary to another very powerful force, which was the rise of the sort of civil defense mindset and the development of the nuclear industrial complex Mm. in the United States. And whenever they were challenged on that from the 1950s all the way through, I guess you could argue to the present, but certainly Mm -hmm. to the 80s, The argument was always, well, we just need wise experts in control of the arsenal. We just need mutually assured destruction. Mm. Um, And if we have that logic, it will hold and we'll all be fine. And the counter argument was usually received as naive. Get rid of all nuclear weapons? That's, that's, what do you mean don't build on the coastline? What do you mean don't build in the wildfire corridor? So characterizing what I might see as a quite sensible argument as total insanity is a necessary rhetorical strategy of the maintenance of those conflicts, just as you described them. I suppose, Scott, it's it's like you're characterized as arguing against what's natural, right? I, I think so. You know, we can certainly look back into the 1960s and find American leadership, presidential and military, arguing that nuclear weapons are just about the most American, natural thing you could have, you know, mom, baseball, apple pie, and the ICBM pointed at Moscow. I mean, it's really, it's really, I mean, I think Stanley Kubrick had it right when he made Dr. Strangelove. That's what he was trying to do with that film, is show the complete upside-down logic of that. And so when I think of that film, And when I teach with that film or talk to people about that film, I try to use that as a device to get them to examine what similar insane but natural risks we have accepted in our own time. 
this is fascinating, you know, growing on the other side of kind of Iron Curtain. Um, <laughs> I had very similar conversations, but completely different at the same time, you know. So reflect on it 20 years later, um, it really is quite, um, <laughs> I don't know, brain numbing almost. Like, so we've never really had this narrative, you know, particularly when I went to school. Uh, we've never really had the narrative about like the enemy, right? Um, because the narrative was about Soviet being great and that's it, kind of the end, the end of discussion. Nevertheless, we were preparing all the time for that something might happen, but no one ever told us, you know, why that would happen. So for example, you know, I'll give you like a basic example. Um, through all my years in school, like through all my education in the nineties, we had um, a class in the school, which was called the basics of survival skills. And so you can imagine this whole class, you know, this whole school kind of learns how to put the gas mask and then run for a kilometer and then crawl, right? And you have this class every week and you learn like how to, I don't know, do the um, the first aid. So some of the skills were quite useful, but nevertheless, we were preparing for this eventuality that something would happen and we'd be all great at putting the gas masks and we'll all survive, you know, because we are great. That's a, the image, even as you describe it, shows me how challenging this is to communicate with people and the and the vast possibilities for the misuse of power in disaster mm -hmm. preparedness because right now we would argue that the best thing a citizen can do in the united states anyone can do in the united states is to wear a mask when they're in a public place mm -hmm. to stay at home as much as possible to and to, in what, in the name of survival and not making other people sick. So some of the activities that we ask people to undertake as preparation in some moments, I think they're very life-saving. I think they're mm -hmm. very affirmative. I think they could be community-oriented. But you could imagine how um, policymakers might manipulate those kinds of that kind of attentiveness of the public to preparedness, mm. to prepare them for things that are not life-affirming, that are not community-driven. You know, preparing people for mass death is in a sense what the civil defense era was all about. Mm. But everybody knew that it was not a preparation for life, it was a preparation for death. Yeah. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the nuclear era right now. I've been thinking a lot about it. I've been thinking about the affect of it with the empty streets, with the almost living as if the nuclear war had happened a few towns over, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so we're in that period of time in which policymakers were supposedly telling us to stay indoors and wait three weeks until the radiation had passed, except it's been eight where I am. <laughs> um, I think there's eerie echoes there across that time and it's useful to think with but also to be attentive as we've said through this conversation to how policymakers are framing those requests for preparedness and um, how open they are to receiving public input on them it doesn't sound Ksenia, like you're you were in a position to um, register your critique <laughs> 
oh, oh no, but, but I am the best prepared person. My husband, who's British, finds it absolutely fascinating that, you know, when we evacuate in the middle of the night, say, you know, when there are like tests or there's a fire alarm in somebody's flat, I am the only person outside at 3am with my passport. And I don't <laughs> even know when I get my passport. It's great, you know, I'm like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> Yeah, but it's good. It's <laughs> moving good. on, <laughs> I yes. have so many stories. You know, I'll tell. I'll tell you one day. Um, so moving on, and this is something you've mentioned um, just now. So we mostly know you as a historian, but I think in in the last few weeks, quite a few of us realized that you're actually a really passionate science communicator, um, particularly through the recent COVID calls that you've been undertaking and arranging. Um, so. How come you care so much about reaching different audiences? And, you know, what drove you to arrange so many COVID calls, which have been so great? Thank you for mentioning the COVID calls. And I can't wait for you both to be guests on the, on the COVID calls. And I would, I guess I would point to a couple of things. Um, it's not a role I would have anticipated for myself when I was in graduate school, say. Hmm. I was doing my dissertation when September 11 happened. And um, so I was writing about 19th century fire. In fact, on the, on the morning of September 11, I was in a plane on my way to Chicago to do research on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which was the fire had the greatest loss of life of any fire in America in the 20th century, in the United States in the 20th century. By the time I landed in Chicago, the World Trade Towers had been attacked. Mm -hmm. And it, of course, is an extraordinary uh, moment to live through. My own experience of it was somehow in one part of my brain, I had this fire of 1903, and then I had the reality of 2001. And what I saw play out in the months that followed was a complete disconnection from history mm. and something we've already been discussing. And to, to define what happened in those buildings as an unexpected event, yes. I don't believe anybody was planning closely for two airliners to fly into the Twin Towers, but they had been preparing for fires in those buildings from, from the beginning. And those buildings were not prepared for fire. Those were experimental buildings. Hmm. I've argued in other places that those were immoral buildings because they took enormous risk in those buildings with lives. Hmm. And to even raise that issue in that moment was unpatriotic. It was deemed unpatriotic. The rush to war started immediately. And I was, um, I came into a circle of victims' families and researchers who were really working hard to get an investigation of the collapse of the Twin Towers. And I followed them closely, even if I was, even as I was finishing my historical work. And at the end of the book, the stories kind of converge because I do bring it up to that, to that moment there at the end of my book. But I was so amazed by them and I was so, and I was so taken with the fact that they were doing exactly what I had written about, but a hundred years previously, they were struggling against enormous political forces to try to marshal um, their own political power and to try to develop a knowledge community with the moral authority to ask questions. Why did the buildings collapse? And so that's, that stuck with me in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I guess ever since then, I have been very interested in how, in the midst of disaster, the researchers and the victims can find voice 
I have been on the sidelines of it, of that, I think mostly, certainly through Katrina and through Hurricane Sandy, although I began on my own, I think, writing opinion pieces and engaging in more public engagement around these issues. And it was really after her, 2017, the, the three hurricanes back-to-back, that I realized we have just got to work harder as a research community to get the researchers into communication with journalists. And if those communications aren't working, they need to be, they need to be in front of the camera. They need to be in front of the microphone. They have the expertise and we can't wait until the blue ribbon commission meets or until the politician says now, I, as I said earlier, until the politician says now is the time to hear from the experts. We can't wait for that. We have to be in the discussion from the beginning. And Disaster research is one of the most vibrant interdisciplinary research spaces I could possibly imagine. Unfortunately, I don't think we've yet seen the fullness of the impact that's possible in saving lives through the application of that research, and I'm desperate to see it applied. So the COVID calls is one take on that. I'd love to see 100 people doing um, whatever necessary to try to get that science out there into use and sometimes i think it will be received as a group of experts talking and that's fine i think we also need to work with art we need to work with narrative we need to work as allies and through mutual aid i think we have a number of different modes that we need to work in as with many things i look to people like Lori peak uh, kathleen tierney trisha wachtendorf Jim Kendra, I mean, just a few I would name who I think have also worked hard to try to find the different registers in which disaster research can can be heard. Um, and that may range from interactions with K-12 through education all the way to appearing before Congress, as Kathleen has. And I think we have to be prepared to do all of those things. That was a long way around of answering your question. And I didn't intend to tell you such a long-winded story, but I do think, I mean, the one quick thing I would append to that is I don't know any disaster researchers who don't have, that many of them may be scientists. I don't want to downplay their science, but they have an idea of how the world should be. Yeah. And the difference between the way the world is and the way the world should be, I think, motivates a lot of them. And I'm impressed by that. Well, one of the things I, I hope we can accomplish in the further seasons of this podcast is to really get traction among people who have who have never really considered what a disaster is before. And because, I, I mean, in the first couple of seasons, we've seen a, a lot of uptake among researchers and students and practitioners, um, but not that much feedback coming from from people who have, who had never encountered um kind of these different debates and stories about disasters so that's something i personally would love to see happen yeah maybe part of that is is how we like some of the things we've been talking about um about bringing the stories that are not not from the experts you know i agree with with that and i share with you the urgency of that challenge 
And what I am particularly trying to be attentive to now, I have not done this yet with the COVID calls, and there's a reason because I think it's still too. I haven't asked any doctors to come on, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm going against my own principle. I said a minute ago, it's it's never too early to talk about politics and disaster, but I'm also aware of the, the enormous stress and strain, and fatigue mm-hmm. of these of these folks. But I think the time is coming, and I think it's soon that we do need to hear from victims survivors, families, and those who are at the front lines of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And here's why I think that, because I think that they have a unique moral authority, just as always victims have a unique moral authority in disaster. But it's not a limitless resource. And I think the extent to which we can support and find ways creatively to bring the research community into that space with survivors. I think that's really important. I, what I would add to that is, and you may have noticed this as well, that for university-based researchers, oftentimes we're told that there's a big difference between research and activism mm-hmm. and that we have to be careful to be on the right side. You'll never get tenure for being an activist. I've heard mm-hmm. that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I look, I look at my colleagues in the um, public health school. It doesn't seem to bother them. Mm. So, why have people in the social sciences and humanities and other disciplines somehow feel that they need to draw a bright line between themselves as as engaged in the politics of the moment? In this case, around the pandemic, and people who can also sit down and do great, clear eyed research. I think we have to reject that. Um, binary but it's a hard one it's a hard one uh, to reject and that's going to take again I think a community of engaged scholars who can reinforce and promote each other and I think that's what you're doing with your podcast and I think it's what we all should be trying to do in these kind of public engagements yeah I think we've all come up against that in some shape or form the the um, somebody telling you to tone it down or be careful about what you're saying or um, getting too political. And I, I just, I think especially in the disaster studies space, that that warning just uh, is um, not something that we can accept because to, to say, it's like you were saying earlier, Scott, that if someone promises you that there's going to be a better time for this conversation, you know that they don't intend to ever provide that opportunity. No, they don't. At the same time, I also want to be very clear that I understand, you know, if I, I'm a professor with tenure. I can go into Twitter and I can mm. um, raise hackles about the president of the United States. Mm. And I will get pushback from that. I mean, I publish an op-ed about President Trump and I get hate mail and mm. I get death threats. Um, but I can do that. And I don't, the, there may be consequences of that for my mental health or for my email inbox. And I'm not going to worry that the hiring committee is going to go back and read my Twitter feed. Yeah. So I believe there's something else we have to really take care here about, which is that um, faculty, junior faculty, faculty who are not in tenure track or people who are university adjacent 
um, and certainly people in the practitioner world, they may not be able to speak quite the way that they may not be able to speak with a single voice and not face consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Well, how have we dealt with that through history? We deal with that through collective action and through the forming of groups that can mm-hmm. provide pressure and achieve ends but as a group. I think we need a union of concerned disaster scientists. I, I think we need mm-hmm. I think we need structures that allow people to come together around these political aims and have their expertise honored, but also not have to feel that they're out there on a limb um, that a hiring committee could cut off. I worry about that a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is a lot in here about solidarity and empathy. And actually, I think disaster community has both just because maybe of the nature of the job, right? Because of the nature of the research. But it's just getting that collective action together, not just in one country, but globally. would be amazing. Thank you so much, Scott, for being with us. And just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about your work or maybe about the COVID calls. Thank you for that opportunity. I would encourage people to join me every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time for COVID calls. And that is broadcast live on YouTube. And you can find that easily by just looking for COVID calls or for looking for the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast of the COVID calls anytime. Just go to soundcloud.com and look for COVID calls. You can also reach me by email or you can find me on Twitter easily or you can um, go to my website, slowdisaster.com. Maybe there's too many ways to find me, I think, but... um, (laughs) Uh, hopefully you use one of those. And I've always been encouraging people also um, to suggest guests for COVID calls or to mm. suggest themselves if they would like to come on and, and join that discussion. And we'll be having a lot of discussions with young researchers coming up as well as practitioners coming up as well. And we're going to be doing those all the way through this calendar year uh, to the end of 2020 at least. Wow. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much, Scott. This has been amazing. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Scott Knowles, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. 